Amen. Well, this is one of those Sundays where the sermon comes first, so we're going right into our message tonight time, and if you've been here for a while, you know that we are working our way through the Gospel of John. In fact, this is our 26th week in the Gospel of John, and we're going to run this all the way through the end of the year. Uh, today's theme is a better way to get through life. How about that? A better way to get through life. We're in John chapter 13 this week. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 13. We're going to be in the first half of that chapter. So, I want you to compare two leaders, all right? Leader A lifted an entire nation in a time of despair. He mobilized people against unimaginable odds with a clear vision and an inspiring passion. He launched a movement that impacted literally everyone alive, even until this day. He set in motion an industrial and a scientific revolution that produced the first computer, the first jet airplane, began human exploration of space, and unlocked the mystery of nuclear energy. Almost every aspect of the modern world has, in one way or another, been influenced by this man. By the time he died at the age of just 56, really everyone on the planet, close to it at least, knew his name. And so without a doubt, Leader A changed the world. Now, Leader B lived during the same era. In fact, he died just 21 days before Leader A. But his life was very different. At the height of his influence, Leader B ran a school with just 100 students. He had written a few books, but he was not widely regarded. He was beloved by his friends and family, and he had a reputation for being both intelligent and faithful. But at the time of his death, almost no one knew his name, and most considered his life's work unfulfilled, including Leader B himself. So, Given the choice, which leader strategies would you rather study? Which leadership conference would you rather attend? The one featuring a, a keynote address by Leader A or the one with a, a small workshop in a back room led by Leader B? If you are inspired by the world-changing effectiveness of Leader A, then congratulations, you've chosen Adolf Hitler. Now, Leader B was a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor who was executed by the Nazis for his relentless opposition to Hitler's terrible reign of terror. That's quite a contrast, isn't it? You know, God's ways are so often very different than the ways of this world. Have you noticed that? The ideals, the qualities, the skills uh, that are so admired in this world are generally the opposite of those that are taught by Jesus. Now today we're exploring a better way to get through life as we discover that followers of Jesus will pursue the qualities of humility that are modeled by Jesus. Now, John chapter 13 marks the, the center break of the gospel of John. We're at the halfway point. 
chapters 1 through 12 dealt with the three-year ministry and life of Jesus on this earth. But now, John turns kind of like his microscope, if you will, into the final 24 hours of Jesus' life. So the whole second half of John is just focused on Jesus and those last hours. So for the last 18 months or so of the time that he spent with his disciples, Jesus had increasingly alluded to the fact that he was going to be dying, dying on a cross. He, he was dropping hints fairly frequently, sometimes seemingly out of nowhere. But each time that he did it, he had a purpose, and that was to prepare those who were following him for his impending death. And so here we are at this point in John's gospel. The cross is looming. Jesus knows that his time is very short. His relationship with his disciples, these 12 men, is going to transition from a face-to-face, day-to-day relationship. It's going to transition to one of enduring faith in what Jesus had taught them when he's gone. And so Jesus is going to wisely use these last hours of personal contact with his guys to basically summarize everything he taught them in the last three years. He's bringing it all together. There's not going to be any more parables, no more illusions, no more examples. This is the end. And Jesus intends to pass on this last bit of teaching before his relationship changes with the disciples forever. Now, Jesus had consistently modeled a different way as he led the disciples. And he actually put it before his disciples, not as an unrealistic ideal, but instead he called them to live a lifestyle like he did, a real lifestyle that was so often colored by the attitude of humility. The humble lifestyle is when we use the power and the ability and the influence that we possess, however great or small it is, we use whatever we have in an intentional way to help others flourish. That's really what humility is. Rather than using what we have merely for our own personal survival or privilege or comfort, we learn to use what God has given us for the well-being of others, the good of others. Now, from our text today, we're going to examine three qualities of the humble lifestyle. Uh, The fact that we are all alive and that we can interact with other people means that every one of us No matter our station in life, no matter our health situation, no matter our economic standing, every one of us can in some way have a positive spiritual impact on those people around us. It's part of bearing the image of God. The image of God is within us. And no matter what we're doing, whether life feels like it's moving somewhere or not, We bear the image of God. And because of that, we have the ability to shape our world through a humble lifestyle. And friends, that is a good, good thing. So 
let's look at some of these qualities. And the first quality that we see in the life of Jesus is that the humble lifestyle provides a secure identity. A secure identity. We are called to live with an identity that is secure in the love of God. You see, friends, if we don't have a secure identity in the love of God, we cannot live the humble lifestyle. Let's read together the first five verses from our text in John chapter 13 this morning. The words are on the screen. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then Jesus poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Amen. The word of God. So here's just a, a brief backdrop, if you will, to this passage. This section of scripture is about the impending end of Jesus' life. Now we know that Jesus was the son of God, that he came from God in order to connect humanity back with God, to redeem us, to reconcile us, to make all things new. He was approaching the point of physical death. And he knew, he knew that the people that he was closest to were going to need to understand what was going to happen, which was a cruel death, followed by a resurrection. So Jesus wanted to interpret that event before it happened so that his disciples could, when the event took place, understand. They could Come, it would come to their mind, oh, that's what it means. Oh, that's why he died. That's why he rose again. The light bulbs would begin to go off. And so he gathers his guys together for a last Passover meal. And he did what no one else wanted to do. He washed their feet. Now, we, we really don't have a good parallel for washing feet in our 21st century. It's kind of a little weird for us, right? If somebody all of a sudden showed up and started washing your feet, wouldn't that be weird to you? I don't want people touching my feet. That's weird. But just to give us some background about what foot washing was, here's what comes to my mind. I want you to think about public restrooms. Public restrooms, get that picture locked in your mind, all right? Maybe it's a, one of those rest stops along the, the interstate. Maybe it's a, a public bathroom at a park or a public restroom, anywhere you might go. Get that locked in your mind, all right? Now, if public restrooms are not cleaned on a regular basis, they become a, a disaster for people, isn't that right? Even if you don't like the idea of using public restrooms, you kind of sometimes really need to, right? So it's, uh, it's quite necessary that these things get cleaned. But it's not necessarily something that most people want to do. Is that right? 
Now, in the ancient world, washing feet was kind of uh, akin to cleaning public restrooms. It was necessary, and it was also kind of dirty and nasty. First of all, closed-toed shoes didn't exist. Secondly, the garbage disposal and sewage disposal systems that we have didn't exist. Number three, the populations were incredibly dense in cities. And number four, everybody walked everywhere. They walked everywhere that the animals walked. That'll give you a little picture of what people were walking through. I could list other things, but the sum of all of it is that people's feet got pretty dirty and stinky and nasty. Feet were absolutely disgusting. And unless feet were washed, you didn't want to be in the same room with someone else with their dirty, stinky feet. So here's what would happen. People would gather, and the person with the lowest status in the room would be assigned the duty of foot washing. Without any fanfare, without drawing any attention, they would grab a, a basin and a towel, and they would go around and they would wash everybody's feet. And because of how hard it was to do this job and how demeaning the task was, it was usually reserved for like the, the lowest of the servants, the lowest status person. It was nothing that anybody desired. Nobody ever grew up saying, I want to be a foot washer when I grow up, right? And so Jesus decided to show his disciples what he came to earth to do what the cross means, what his whole mission means. In this one act, he wanted to illustrate for them a new way of operating in the Christian world. He drew attention to himself. He stripped down to his waist. He took a towel and he tied it around his waist. And then he went around and he started washing all of their dirty, stinky feet. And when he was all done, he stood up and he said to them, do you see what I've just done, guys? I, as your leader, as your Lord, served you. And I want you to take this pattern and I want you to repeat it throughout your life. I want this quality to define the life of the family of God. I want it to define the way the church relates to the world. I want it to define the way that the body of Christ relates with one another. I want this to be what people in church do. Which is to take their privilege and their power and use it to serve others, for the flourishing, the well-being of others. Disciples, I want you to learn to live in this way because that's what it means when I'm on the cross for you. And that's what it means when I am interceding for you at the Father's right side. Look at verse 3. Jesus knew a few things, didn't he? More than a few things. But first of all, he knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. But he also knew that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. 
So he was secure in who he was. He knew his identity. He knew how he fit into the Father's plan. See, he got his selfhood from God the Father. He got his existence from God. He got his meaning from God. And he got his love from God. And so throughout his gospel, John unpacks this in a number of different ways. Always pointing to the fact that Jesus is consistently in contact with the Father. Praying to the Father, help me, I need you. And he's saying to his people, I do nothing apart from the Father. I and the Father are one. We're, we're linked together. We have a covenant relationship. We operate together. You see, he was always reinforcing that and he was always teaching that. He was always modeling that. He was also going back to the Father, the text says. He was returning to the origin of his existence. So Jesus is, is pointing his existence back to the Father. Now, you and I, we don't share the divinity of Jesus. But guess what? We do partake in the same life that God provides. We partake in the same identity when we become sons and daughters of God. Now, if you're not a Christian yet... This is one of the great benefits of being a Christ follower. You receive the most secure identity that a human being could ever get. And that is the pure love of God. The God who is the origin of all things, the God who is the origin of all love, the creator of this world, wants to show you his love. He wants you to be secure in his love. He wants you to have a self-image and an identity that is greater, greater than your insecurities, greater than your fears, even greater than your wildest imaginations. You see, Jesus had all of that. Jesus owned it. Jesus was always going back to his secure identity. And brothers and sisters, this kind of secure identity is for us. I want us to understand that this morning. It is available for you if you want it. It is true and it is real and it is available to anyone who would trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And if you are struggling in some way to experience this kind of security, Jesus provides a tremendous model for us. Speak to the Father. Tell him, Lord, I'm insecure. I need you. Father, I don't feel loved. I don't feel significant. I don't feel like I have enough resources. I feel like my life is disintegrating. I feel tempted to trust only in myself or in, in other people, whatever it might be. Tell the Father that. And over time, as we say, Lord, help me. When we bring our greatest needs to him, our greatest insecurities, over time what God does is he makes our hearts new. He establishes in us a new security, his security. And then when we're tempted, 
to go it on our own. When we're tempted to go astray, God anchors us in his own righteousness and his own goodness and his own generosity. And he says, this is enough for you. Live in it. Abide in it. Believe it. Understand it. I did this for you in Christ. I poured out my love for you in Christ. Rest in that. Rest in that. And friends, it is through that trust, through that realization that we find our secure identity. And so the first quality of the humble lifestyle that's modeled by Jesus is living with a secure identity. Now next, we see that when we pursue the humble lifestyle, we will keep our power under control. Did you know that you have power? Do you know that you're very powerful if you're a follower of Jesus? Let's look back to verse 3 again. We saw that Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. Now what does that mean? Well, consider this. The Father had given all power to Jesus, all authority to Jesus. Do you know that Jesus could have used that power to destroy the traitor that was sitting in that room at the foot washing ceremony? He could have destroyed him with the wrath of God. He could have used his power and authority to reduce his opponents and his critics that had just been nagging at him. He could reduce them to nothingness. He actually had that authority. He could have done that. But in this encounter, he is setting the tone for us to keep our power under control. Look in verse 4. He rose from the supper. That means Jesus took the initiative. He's using his power. He took the initiative. He laid aside his outer garments. He's creating a, a dramatic environment as a leader. He created this gathering, and now he is setting the tone for the gathering. And then he goes around on his hands and his knees, washing his disciples' filthy feet, which is an amazing and a complete reversal of status. The rabbi, the Lord, the teacher, the ruler is washing the students' feet. Let's read together the next part of our text, beginning in verse 6. Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For Jesus knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. Amen. God's word. So, if anyone else would have done this, in this social setting, this foot washing thing, they would have been shut down. In fact, his disciples tried to shut him down, didn't they? Look at what Peter said. Oh, you're not going to wash my feet, Lord. You're, you're the rabbi. You're the teacher. 
You're the Lord. You're not washing my feet. And what does Jesus answer back? Does he say, oh, you know, I'm just a humble leader. Oh, we're just dialoguing here, Peter, you and I, your ideas, my ideas. We'll kind of come to a, a consensus. No. This is nothing less than a showdown of power. And what does Jesus actually say in response? He says to Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me, Peter. You're not connected with me. So this is a power play on Peter's part, saying, oh, no, Lord. And, and, and Jesus is saying, I want you, Peter, to back down because I have authority in this situation and I am using my power and authority for something specific. I have a vision for this situation. And Peter, if you don't go along with it, there will be some serious consequences. You see, Jesus is not afraid to use his power. Now, in using it, does he just shut Peter down to make him feel bad? No, of course not. Is he is shutting him down to prove something? No. Jesus' identity is secure. He's got nothing to prove. He is simply carrying out his mission, carrying out his mandate. This is not about who's the bigger man. Jesus is laying himself out before Peter. He's not afraid to exercise his power on Peter's behalf. And he's not afraid to stop Peter from stopping him from doing what must be done. Now let's look at the next part of the conversation, verses 12 through 14. Let's read this together. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your teacher and Lord has washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Hmm. Now we're getting down to the nitty-gritty, aren't we? Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't say, you know what, guys, just call me bro. Just call me the J-man. You know, we're on a first name basis, just, just Jesus. No. He says, it is good that you call me rabbi. That is a term of respect and honor. It means teacher. It is good that you call me kurios. That means Lord. It's good that you use the name Lord that King Caesar wants to force you to call him. But it's good that you use it to address me. Because you know what? I am the rabbi. And I am the Lord. And I exercise authority over you. And it's good that you recognize that because I want you to do what I'm doing. Remember, way back at the beginning, we talked about what does it mean to be a disciple? A disciple is a learning, doing follower. These are his disciples. And he says, I want you to exercise lordship and rulership over creation. But I want you to do it through service, through humility, like I do. This is what I want you to do. Jesus is honest about his power as he keeps it under control. And he wants that for us as well. Aircraft carriers and cruise ships sail on the blue oceans with immense reserves of power 
and huge degrees of freedom. One sort of ocean-going vessel is devoted to aggression and war, the other to comfort and leisure. Both, however, are massive, independent, floating islands of power. They navigate strategically based on on large-scale charts covering vast distances driven by, by economic or military considerations. In contrast, tugboats are quite different. Tugboats are limited to a a specific harbor. Now, a tugboat master might be one of the highest paid individuals in the shipping industry, but only in one place, one location. To be a tugboat is to be committed to that specific place, to know it intimately. You see, tugboats have to be nimble and maneuverable and responsive to the slightest variations, whether it be the the seafloor or the local currents. Tugboats, they're not especially impressive to look at. They're not pretty and majestic, but they're powerful. And guess what? They're indispensable. So tugboats, we might say, are the humble servants of the seagoing world with their power well controlled. They don't navigate for themselves. They navigate to bring other ships safely into harbor. And so friends, when we truly follow Jesus, we too will have great power. And it's not the power of status or wealth or our own ingenuity or our smarts. We're not aircraft carriers or majestic cruise liners. Our power comes from outside ourselves. And it resides in us through God's Holy Spirit. And you know, there is a temptation for us to not acknowledge our power. Because you know what? When we don't acknowledge our power, you know what? We don't have to have any responsibility. Oh, I'm nothing. I'm garbage, just a little old tugboat. Oh, not me, Lord. I'm not skilled. I don't know enough. I don't have enough. But friends, as Christ followers, we have great power under control and we are called to use it. A person pursuing the humble lifestyle will be vulnerable enough to admit that they have authority or power, or influence. But they will also be willing to use it for the betterment of others. You see, when we pursue the humble lifestyle, we have an ability to shape the world around us through our secure identity by exercising power under control. And then finally, number three, by maintaining a focus beyond personal survival. You see, when we pursue the humble lifestyle that is modeled by Jesus, our focus will extend well beyond our own personal survival. Jesus had a vision for a church where his followers would use all of their status so that others could flourish. He had a vision of a community that would operate in this way. You know, after he died and he rose again and he ascended back to the Father, we see this 
community taking place in the book of Acts, in the early church. It was a powerful time. Power under control being unleashed in great ways for the betterment of others. Some of you in your own life have seen this, have experienced this. Christians coming together in the name of Jesus and operating with this foot-washing mentality. Doing things like providing meals to those in need, taking care of the poor, the downtrodden, the hurt, the hurting. A community pouring their lives out for the sake of others in order to expand the good news of the gospel to everyone that needs it. And everyone does need it. Let's read a few more verses from this encounter. Verses 15 through 17. Jesus' words. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Amen. God's word. So the humble lifestyle looks beyond personal needs, beyond survival towards serving others. You know, our world, what do we do in our world? We're taught to look out for number one. You take care of you and your own before you worry about others. Is that right? But the humble lifestyle of Jesus says, what can I do? How can I best serve others? Dan Cathy is the president and CEO of the Chick-fil-A restaurant chain. Now that is a company that takes in more than $11 billion every year. Now, a few years ago, Mr. Cathy was in Southern California. He was checking on some new Chick-fil-A restaurants that his company was building. And during the visit, he met up with a local pastor and invited this pastor to come around and make the rounds with him. And so the two men stopped at a particular construction site of a Chick-fil-A restaurant. And here's how the pastor tells the story. He says, we were looking at the building site. And while we were there, we were hungry. And so Mr. Cathy suggested we go next door to, I think it was a, a Taco Bell, another fast food company in competition with Chick-fil-A. Now we'd been out on building sites all morning and our hands were all sweaty and dirty and so we went into the restroom and washed our hands. Then I watched Dan Cathy take out paper towels this is the CEO of a multi-million dollar, billion dollar worldwide chain of restaurants. And I watched him pull the towels out and I watched him clean the sinks and the mirrors of the Taco Bell bathroom that we were in. I looked at him shocked at first. And then I said, Mr. Kathy, thank you for doing that. And he said, Pastor, we teach our staff to always leave any place they're at better than it was when they found it, whether it's our place or not. Nobody at that Taco Bell and nobody at Taco Bell corporate knew that the CEO of their competition had just cleaned their bathroom for free. Isn't that a great story? 
Friends, I want to ask you this. Do you have the eye to see what needs to be done? You see, we have the power. We have the identity. We are secure in our position because of Jesus. These are things that we know. The question is, what will we do? After he washed their feet as an example, and as a, a motivating memory, do you think those disciples ever for the rest of their life forgot the Lord Jesus Christ kneeling down in front of them and washing their feet? They never forgot that moment. That was a motivating memory. And his instructions were quite simple. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Friends, we have no excuse. We know these things. You're not off the hook now. Because if you didn't know it before, you know it from today forward. Do you want to be blessed by God? Do you desire God's blessing in your life? What does Jesus say here? Blessed are you if you do them. If you want to be blessed by God, follow the model of Jesus. Live the humble lifestyle. Let's pray together.